Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. What makes a killer contains graphic details of sexual assault and violence and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is strongly advised. December 11th, 1978, Des Illinois. It's almost 9 p.m., and 15-year-old Rob Peast is getting ready to end his shift at a pharmacy. When Rob's mother arrives to pick him up, he asks if she can wait. He tells her he wants to talk to a contractor about a construction job. She agrees. Rob heads into the back parking lot to meet the contractor, who then offers to drive Rob back to his home to fill out an application. Rob goes with him. Rob Peast is never seen alive again. When her son doesn't return, Rob's mother panics and files a missing person report that evening. Mike Albrecht was one of the detectives investigating the teen's disappearance. And at that time in the late 70s, there was a lot of stuff going on with the hippie movement, all that kind of stuff. But he made a determination very quickly that this was not a normal, quote-unquote, runaway. He didn't have any girlfriend problems, was not involved in drugs or anything like that. He was just an all-American good kid. The last person seen with Rob at the pharmacy is 36-year-old John Wayne Gacy, a local businessman, socialite, and Democratic precinct captain. He is also known to spend his weekends entertaining children as a clown named Pogo or Patches. The Chicago police take Gacy into custody. Detective Dave Hockmeister is alarmed when he discovers Gacy's criminal past. We ran a records check on him, and as it turns out, he had a fairly lengthy um, background. He had spent uh, some time in uh, Iowa for sodomy, and uh, so it was sexual crimes basically against children. On December 21st, police search Gacy's Brick Ranch home at 8213 West Summerdale Avenue, an address that will go down in infamy. When they executed that search warrant, they went in the crawl space, and the very first shovel that they dug, they found human remains. Authorities discover 27 bodies buried in the trenches directly below Gacy's home. It's a mass grave. Three other bodies are found buried elsewhere on his property. Norwood Park Township, once a portrait of safe suburban community, was shattered. At one point, chillingly, he says to the detectives, you know, clowns can get away with murder. Over the course of six years, John Wayne Gacy kidnapped tortured, and brutally murdered 33 young men and boys in and around Chicago, Illinois. Using other human beings, you know, inflicting pain and suffering and torture on another helpless human being, to me, is is the essence of evil. This is What Makes a Killer, a 12-part series that chronicles the lives and crimes of the world's most notorious serial killers. I'm your host, Jennifer Natoso. 
In every episode, we'll trace a killer's origins, examine their behavior, and follow their path to bloodshed. We'll speak with family members, survivors, and experts to uncover how they became killers. In this episode, we'll discuss John Wayne Gacy, the killer clown. John Wayne Gacy was born in 1942 in Chicago, Illinois. His family was blue-collar. Gacy was the second of three children and the only son. Gacy's father was reportedly a violent alcoholic who would mentally and physically abuse his wife and children. Gacy's childhood friend, Barry Buscelli, remembered Gacy's abusive childhood at the hands of his father. If Johnny was two minutes late, no food. So a lot of times Johnny ate at our house and stayed at our house overnight. He used to take Johnny when he was sitting at the kitchen table and he would take his fist and hit Johnny in the face. Gacy's father would also verbally assault Gacy, often calling him stupid and effeminate. But despite the abuse, Gacy still admired his father and sought his approval. Author and journalist Jeffrey Wansel suspects this behavior laid the grounds for Gacy's dark and violent future. The father is a very significant figure in the genesis of Gacy's terrible deeds. For, to my mind, Gacy was always trying to satisfy his father, whom he never could. He was beaten repeatedly by his father with belts, with brooms. At one stage, he was knocked out by him. Harold Schechter, a true crime writer who specializes in serial killers, weighs in. These people grow up with such a malignant view of the world and of human relationships and feeling that human relationships are not based on love and trust and respect. You know, that they're all based on exploitation and cruelty and inflicting pain. We'll be right back. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. As a child, Gacy was very sickly. He was overweight and was sometimes teased because of it. He was also diagnosed with a heart condition, which prevented him from participating in sports or any other physical activities, further alienating him from his peers. At age 11, Gacy had an accident on the playground. This led to repeated blackouts and hospital visits in his teenage years. Gacy's childhood friend, Barry, remembers. At that time, the swings were wooden base swings with heavy chains coming down. Johnny went to grab it, and the swing clipped him right across the forehead and knocked him to the ground. Doctors were unable to immediately explain his condition. And so, Gacy's father accused him of faking his blackouts for attention. Eventually, doctors discovered that Gacy had a blood clot in his brain. He received treatment, but 
Prolonged hospital visits meant Gacy had fallen behind in school, so he decided to drop out. This was another failure in the eyes of his father. In 1960, at age 18, Gacy became interested in politics and worked as a precinct captain for a neighborhood Democratic candidate. As soon as he had a car, Gacy left his abusive father and became an attendant in Las Vegas, Nevada, at the Palm Mortuary. He spent many nights alone in the mortuary and would often sleep on a cot near the embalming room. One evening, Gacy climbed into a coffin and molested the corpse of a teenage boy. Afterward, he became appalled with himself that he was aroused by a male corpse. Without disclosing any details, he called his mother the next day and Gacy returned to Chicago. In 1963, he then became a management trainee at a shoe company. He was soon promoted and transferred to Springfield, Illinois. He began dating a co-worker, and they married in 1964. Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley describes the facade Gacy began to build for himself. Well, Gacy got married and life from the outside appeared to be relatively normal. He had quite a good job. Um, his wife had two children. So they appeared to be the typical cereal box American nuclear family. And Gacy wasn't just a, a regular family man. He was also quite active in the, the local chamber of commerce and he played quite an active role. And he was a real figure in the local community. In 1966, Gacy and his wife relocated to Waterloo, Iowa, where Gacy managed three fast food chain restaurants owned by his father-in-law. Gacy joined the Waterloo JCs, a civic organization, and quickly climbed the ranks. In 1967, he was named Outstanding Vice President and served on their board of directors. He brought free fried chicken to meetings and insisted on being called Colonel by his colleagues. Gacy built a strong reputation within his community. But Gacy had a dark secret. He was developing an unhealthy sexual interest in young boys. Gacy's first known assault was in August 1967. A 15-year-old boy was coerced into Gacy's basement with the promise of free alcohol and pornographic films. After intoxicating the teen, Gacy forced him to perform oral sex. There was a son of a fellow JC member who he, he lured back to his home and he sexually assaulted. So he's abusing power. He's getting into these positions of trust and he's taking advantage. And, and that's a theme that's going to continue for him. Gacy continued his predatory behavior, thinking he could act with impunity. Over the following months, several other adolescents were sexually abused in a similar way. But in March 1968, the boy told his father about the incident with Gacy. His father immediately went to the police. Harold Schechter said Gacy tried to retaliate. Uh, Gacy hired another teenager to intimidate this kid, to lure this kid into some remote place and spray mace in his eyes and beat him up and warn him against testifying in Gacy's case. 
Gacy promised the teenager $300 if he followed through with his plan. However, the boy testifying against Gacy managed to escape the attempted assault and went straight to the police. The other teen was arrested the following day and revealed Gacy's involvement. He pleaded guilty to one count of sodomy, thinking he would get a very, very minimal sentence. Uh, but the judge threw the book at him, and he was sentenced to 10 years in prison. On December 3, 1968, Gacy was sent to Anamosa State Penitentiary. His wife filed for divorce. A year later, Gacy's father died of cirrhosis of the liver. The news struck Gacy hard. He asked to attend the funeral, but the request was denied. Even in prison, Jeffrey Wansel says Gacy manipulated people using his charisma and charm. Given the perfect nature of Gacy's ability to groom whomever he came into contact with, within a matter of months, Gacy had become head cook at the prison, had convinced the staff that he was an absolutely ideal person. What's more then convinced the parole board that he was no danger to anybody, and so served barely 18 months of the 10 years of his uh, original sentence. Gacy's good behavior paid off. In June 1970, now aged 28, John Wayne Gacy was released from prison and placed on probation for one year. He went to live with his mother in Chicago. However, none of his friends, family, or neighbors were aware of his crimes in Iowa. His background was not looked into in any way, I think partly because he didn't go into any line of work in which any kind of background check would have been necessary. You know, he began his own business. With financial help from his mother, Gacy bought a house in Norwood Park Township on West Somerdale Avenue. In 1972, Gacy married a divorcee with two young daughters. Gacy started his own construction business, Painting, Decorating, and Maintenance, or PDM Contractors, Inc., Gacy continued to be active in politics and within his community. On weekends, Gacy would dress up as a clown and perform for children's parties and at local hospitals. The fact that Gacy had this other persona as Pogo the Clown, professional clowns usually, you know, will paint their smiles, you know, with sort of gentle, circular things around their lips. Gacy's smile looks like bat wings. There's just something horrifically sinister and monstrous um, about, about this figure of Pogo. Just an element that raises Gacy to the level of a kind of mythic American monster. Being the socialite he was, Gacy loved to host parties. On occasion, a house guest would comment on a pungent odor Gacy would assure his wife and guests that the smell was due to moisture buildup. Periodically, he'd spread lime in their crawl space to mask the stench. Sometimes, he'd even have one of his employees do it. Often, Gacy's wife observed him bringing home teenage boys 
and found gay pornography. Gacy told his wife that he was bisexual. In 1976, the couple divorced on mutual grounds. A sinister grip took hold of Gacy. The contracting business became the bait for attracting young boys seeking employment. The sexual urges he had once been ashamed of could not be quieted. Before long, dozens of teenaged boys began to go missing. On December 11, 1978, Gacy met with the owner of a pharmacy in De Plains to discuss a potential remodeling deal. Gacy mentioned with an earshot of employee Rob Peast that his company hired teenage boys at a starting wage of $5 per hour, double the amount Rob made at the pharmacy. That evening, Rob Peast went missing. Detective Hockmeister said this particular case was unusual. Rob Peast was like a stellar kid. I mean, he was the kind of kid that anyone would want as a son. Never been in trouble, uh, never had any inclination to run away. He was a good student, very, very much out of character. They, he would turn up missing. So, um, you know, that caught our attention, obviously. The two detectives on the case, Dave Hockmeister and Mike Albrecht, eventually found the last person who had seen Rob, 36-year-old John Wayne Gacy. Police took Gacy into custody, where he denied talking to Rob or having any involvement with his disappearance. During the interrogation, police combed through Gacy's record. They found incriminating evidence, including an outstanding battery charge against him in Chicago and his time in prison for the sodomy with a 15-year-old boy. As suspicions of Gacy grew, detectives requested a search warrant for his home. The warrant consisted of three facts. The first fact is that John Wayne Gacy, in fact, was at the pharmacy the night Rob Peace went missing. And fact two, that Rob Peace had told people that he was uh, going to see a contractor regarding a job. And fact three, his criminal background. So under those three facts, they were able to obtain a search warrant. On December 13th, 1978, police conducted their first search of Gacy's home. There was a stench of decay, but with no exact origin. As detectives rifled through Gacy's home, they discovered a collection of suspicious things. They recovered various items of pornography. They um, recovered some books that were titled uh, Pretty Boys Must Die. They also recovered driver's licenses of other young people. When they did a check on those driver's licenses, it uh, was determined that those kids were also reported missing. Police also found a receipt for a roll of film that was being developed from the same pharmacy where Rob Peast had worked. Detective Albrecht thought, this doesn't look good. Initially, we're hoping to find Rob Peast alive someplace. And it didn't take long to realize that probably was not going to happen. Police also found clues regarding other missing people, one of which was a high school ring which belonged to 19-year-old John Schick, last seen in January 1977. Further investigation revealed that two of Gacy's own employees had been reported missing. 17-year-old John Butkovich, last seen July 1975, and Gregory Godzik, 
also 17 years old, missing since December 1976. It was an evolution as we went along. I think it was after that search warrant, we're pretty confident there's at least five or six victims that were associated with Gacy that hadn't been seen. The search solidified suspicions of Gacy, making him a prime suspect. However, the evidence was insubstantial to make an arrest. There were no bodies. So, Gacy was released, but under constant surveillance by Detectives Albrecht and Hockmeister. We just said, wherever you go, we're going. If Gacy went into a public place, we were going to follow him in and see what he was up to. Throughout this overt surveillance, we became fairly friendly with John Wayne Gacy. He knew we were following him. Um, He tried to be cordial with us. In fact, he initiated conversations with us. Forensic psychologist Helen Morrison said Gacy liked to provoke the police. He played games with the police. He'd go up to their car and say, hi, do you guys want some marijuana? (laughs) Or do something stupid like that. He goes into Moose Lodge, and Mike and I, my partner and I, said, we're going to go in right along with Gacy, but we'll sit at a different table. All of a sudden, the waitress comes over with a couple of beers and places of beers in front of us and says, it's on that gentleman over there. We look over at John, and John gives us the high sign, and we wave back. John Wayne Gacy had a a psychopathic personality, so he really does seek out power and he seeks out control, and he likes playing with people. He's a a bit of a puppet master, and I think that was driving his behavior. Everyone that we talked to just loved John Wayne Gacy. His neighbors, his co-workers, uh, all of his associates, they loved the guy. And we could see that. I mean, the way he was interacting with us was basically the same. And my partner and I would have to, on many occasions, remind one another, hey, listen, you know, this guy is dangerous. Detectives Albrecht and Hockmeister continued with their surveillance. Meanwhile, back at the station, disturbing new evidence began to surface as authorities questioned friends and colleagues of Gacy. They're young kids, you know, 17, 18, 19 years old. And at times... Uh, Gacy had ordered these young kids to go down into his crawl space of his home and dig trenches, and he had told them that there was a um, sewage issue and that he needed the trenches dug so he could alleviate that situation. But they said that it happened several times and that there was an odor down there that was just unbelievable. So now we're starting to believe, hey, is it possible? And I know it sounds crazy, but is it possible he could have buried someone in the crawl space? Gacy would hire young boys to help, inadvertently, dig his graveyard. He gets other people unwittingly involved in his offending, and they don't know anything of what's going on. And I think that's what gets him gratification, the fact that that he has such power over other people, that they're not joining the dots together, and that he's able to hide in plain sight. At this point, police were convinced that Gacy was hiding something. They compiled the evidence needed to obtain a second search warrant of Gacy's house. Detectives Albrecht and Hockmeister hatched a plan. Uh, We were on the surveillance for about seven days. And as the surveillance progressed, what we found out was that he had this huge core support of friends and family and co-workers and such, and that that is really what was the barrier between 
us and Gacy. So we developed a plan for the investigators to put some pressure on all of these people that were supporting him. And slowly, they started peeling back from Gacy. In December 1978, Gacy left his home disheveled. He was unshaven and visibly anxious, as detectives would later describe. The round-the-clock surveillance became too much for him to tolerate. Gacy drove straight to his lawyer's office, with detectives in tow. At the office, Gacy filed a civil suit against the DePlanes police, claiming they were harassing him and destroying his reputation with their investigation. Coincidentally, that same afternoon, police found more damning evidence. The photo receipt found in Gacy's home was traced back to a co-worker of Rob's at the pharmacy. Police contacted the girl, who told them that she had placed the receipt in Rob's jacket pocket right before he left the store to meet with the contractor. A few days later, Gacy returned to his lawyer's office. He became more and more desperate. And the last day, it was uh, about midnight or one in the morning, he contacted his attorneys and met his attorneys in their office in Park Ridge. At that point, Mike and I are outside and we see the attorneys waving us into the building. It was very uncharacteristic of the attorneys to do this. The first thing they were telling us though was to park your cars in front of Gacy's and don't let him out. If he tries to move, shoot his tires out. You know, what's going on here? It was very obvious to us that the attorneys were absolutely scared to death, petrified. They're pacing up and down. They won't take their eyes off of Gacy. And that pretty much solidified the fact to us that he had confessed to his attorneys about at least uh, a couple, three murders. Gacy was beginning to buckle. His behavior grew more erratic. So we follow Gacy, and uh, Gacy is driving like a madman. And he drives to the Shell gas station where he did all of his business. He goes in, and we see a transaction happen in the gas station. It was very emotional, shaking his hand and almost on his side, hugging that kind of thing. And this was so out of context for Gacy. So when Gacy comes back out, jumps in his car and takes off, I go back in the gas station. And when I go in there, they throw a couple of bags of marijuana at me the employees, and they say, hey, listen, we didn't buy this, we didn't ask for it, Gacy just gave it to us. At least now, the detectives had a reason to apprehend Gacy for possession and distribution of marijuana. We make a decision at that point to arrest him for the drug transaction that happened at the Shell gas station. So we cut off the car, pull Gacy out of the car, and arrest him for the drug transaction. While in custody, Detectives told Gacy that they had a second search warrant for his home. Suddenly, Gacy went pallid. He started to experience chest pains and was taken to a nearby hospital. In the meantime, police returned to Gacy's ranch-style house on West Somerdale Avenue with the aim to find Rob Peast's body. Upon entering his home, detectives were greeted with an odor of death. That day, Gacy's dark secret was unearthed. His true nature was revealed to the world. So they immediately called me, let me know that um, there was human remains in a crawl space, and at that time I arrested uh, John Gacy for murder. Gacy says he wants to confess, but really he wants to confess to the surveillance team. 
both myself and my partner and the other team. And now all of a sudden he's got an audience again and he's on top of the world and he knows he can't get out of it at this point and so he might as well just divulge everything that actually happened. In a rambling confession that lasted several hours, Gacy confessed to the murders. Cooperating with police, he agreed to draw a map showing where all the bodies were buried underneath his home. I gave him a pen and he started right up, he squared it off in the thing and he started, well, this was a double and this was a triple and this was the first guy with a, put an X on it. Went around the whole crawl space with these places where the body was buried. I mean, they were digging with spoons and everything, but they obviously identified where all the bodies were, and they did an overlay of where the bodies were actually found compared to that diagram that he made, and it was unbelievable. It was right on the money. In total, 27 bodies were recovered from Gacy's crawl space. This morbid discovery sent the media into a frenzy. Then the arrests came down, and... That was the headline on the local papers, everything, how many bodies they took out of Gacy's basement. To his community, Gacy seemed normal, unremarkable. Harold Schechter explains. Well, you know, when Gacy's crimes were uncovered, he entered into the record books, you know, as the America's most prolific serial murderer. The notion that this, you know, pudgy, normal-seeming, decent, regular, ordinary guy was living in this horror house, you know, that was just suffused with the stench of death and that there were the rotting bodies of 27 young men in his crawl space bringing home and torturing young boys right in the midst you know, of all his neighbors, and then going off to work the next day. When we booked him for murder, we asked Gacy uh, where, where he was born. And Gacy looked at us and said, I was born in a state of confusion. And he smiled like that, and we captured the photo. The photo was Gacy's mugshot. He stands against a cement wall holding up a black placard. His hair is unkempt. He's looking off to his left with a wry grin. Gacy confessed to the murder of 33 young men and boys between 1972 and 1978. Gacy falsely claimed that all the victims were runaways or male prostitutes. Gacy preyed on victims who he knew were not necessarily going to be missed by any family members, rootless and homeless teenage boys who had no families that were going to miss them or care about their disappearance. At that time, in the late 70s, kids were running away all the time. And a lot of these kids were reported missing, but there was no follow-up. Most of Gacy's victims' bodies were found in the crawl space, but there were other disposal sites. As it turns out, he had buried 27 young kids in the crawl space, he buried one of the young kids outside in his backyard, and he didn't have any room left on his property, so he threw five remaining victims in the Des Plaines River. In April 1979, the body of Rob Peast was found floating in the river. Gacy later confessed to his murder and 
He was very descriptive on what he had done with Rob Peast. So Gacy actually drives Peast willingly to Gacy's house. While there, Gacy starts showing Peast some some little tricks of the trade of being a clown. He shows a, a couple of card tricks. And the last trick that he shows Peast is the handcuff trick. Gacy actually handcuffs himself and turns around and struggles with the handcuffs and then turns back and he holds the handcuffs up. And Peast is pretty amazed at that. And he said, well, that's, that's neat, how'd you do that? So Gacy says, well, here, you handcuff yourself and I'll show you how to do that. So Peast handcuffs himself and he struggles and he struggles and he struggles. And he looks at Gacy and he says, now what's the trick to this? And Gacy reaches in his pocket and pulls out a key to the handcuffs. And he says, the trick is, you got to have this key. This handcuff trick was one of Gacy's perverse schemes. Gacy, throughout all of the 33 killings, had developed a method of killing these young kids. He would uh, pick up these victims. Some were kids who worked from him, but most were teenage runaways, you know, and bringing them back to his house and giving them drinks. He would sort of trick them into handcuffing themselves or being handcuffed. Gacy would sometimes use chloroform to render his victims unconscious. Afterward, he'd apply his method of torture. He did what he called the rope trick. And when he had these young kids incapacitated like that, he would slip a rope over their neck, a knotted rope like a loop, and then put the stick in the back like a tourniquet, and he would slowly turn the tourniquet. And he said he had it perfected so well that he knew exactly how the body would react to each half turn. And he went into detail on how he would torture these young men. And he, in fact, did double and triple murders. He would incapacitate two or three people at a time and kill one person in front of the other victims and then continue to kill the other victims. And he seemed to be pretty proud of that. We used that to our advantage to keep him talking, and he described every killing um, to a T, exactly how it happened, all 33. As the news spread across the country, one viewer who had unknowingly participated in Gacy's handcuff trick was Gacy's former employee, Tony Antonucci. While working for PDM, Tony had accidentally gotten a nail stuck in his foot. John took me and I got a tetanus shot and, uh, and took me home. And he came over later that evening to check on if I was okay or that was the, the theory. But he also had, you know, some wine and we were drinking and he was kind of joking around. It was probably 10, 10.30 at night. I was a high school wrestler. And he said, oh, you know, you know you're a big wrestler guy. And he started wrestling around with me. He got uh, my left arm, and he got it behind me, and I felt him put a handcuff on it. I kept flailing my right hand around so that he he couldn't get my right arm, but eventually he did get a hold of my right arm, and he knocked me down to the floor with my hands behind me. He left the room for a few minutes, and I realized that if I pulled really hard on my right hand, that I could pull my hand through the handcuff. I could get it out. By pretending that he was still handcuffed, 
Tony was able to deceive Gacy and turn the situation around in his favor. I took the handcuff that I had gotten out of and I handcuffed him on one of his wrists and I reached into his pocket, got the key, and I handcuffed him behind his back, laying face down. He goes, you're the only one that not only got out of the handcuffs, you got them on me. And I didn't know what that meant. I thought that this was some type of test that he had performed before. And I let him stay handcuffed for 10 or 15 minutes before I let him out of the handcuffs. And, you know, he had previously agreed that when I let him up, he would leave. And he did. At that moment, Tony had no idea just how close he had come to being another one of Gacy's victims. I did not fear for my life, and not fearing for my life and not panicking uh, is probably what saved my life. Because I'm sure if when I got out of the handcuffs, if I tried to run for the door or do something, you know, he was 33 years old and very strong, and I was 16 or 17, I'm sure he could have overpowered me if, if he knew he had to. Remarkably, Tony continued working for PDM for a few months, he didn't report the incident until after Gacy's arrest. Forty years after being attacked, Tony was grateful that he was able to outsmart Gacy. I do feel very lucky uh, to be alive. I don't know what to attribute that to. You know, maybe I, you know, luck definitely um, the biggest component. You know, a little bit of help from above, and basically my own ignorance of the fact that I was truly in danger and the fact that I didn't panic and just wanted to win the game, if it was a game, is probably what helped. I also would have been one of the earlier victims, so I'm sure his techniques became more honed after he was divorced and lived alone and had more freedom to act differently. In December 1978, John Wayne Gacy was arrested and thrown in jail after authorities discovered a collection of body parts buried in a crawl space beneath his home. Police dismantled Gacy's home and began the rigorous process of identifying all the bodies. Harold Schechter explains how the news stunned the tiny suburban community. One of the effects that learning about these crimes has on the public is that it's sort of reduces you to a state of childlike awe and terror and wonder. You know, you can imagine all these middle American suburbanites suddenly hear the authorities bringing out the decomposed remains of young men that have been stored in the crawl space of your neighbor's house. Since Gacy killed over the course of several years, the victims' bodies were discovered in different states of decomposition. It was a tremendous undertaking for the forensic team. By the time the case went to trial in 1980, police had managed to identify the remains of 22 of the victims. Many were identified using dental and radiology records. It took time for many of the relatives to come forward to help identify the victims. A sergeant and member of the Cook County Investigation Unit at the time imagined some parents were reluctant to call out of fear that their sons engaged in homosexual activity. To this day, 
six of Gacy's victims remain unidentified. As the state prepared their case, they were determined to ensure that the man who had been held in such high esteem by his local community would pay for his crimes in full. The trial of John Wayne Gacy began on February 6, 1980 at the Cook County Criminal Courts Building in Chicago. At the time, Illinois still had the death penalty. Gacy's defense team was pleading insanity. Helen Morrison distinctly remembers. It was an interesting trial. And what was so fascinating about it was they had so many different psychiatrists saying so many different things that they all came up with different diagnoses, which really goes towards this picture of this non-intact human being, this bits and pieces of person. The trial lasted five weeks, and though the defense was pleading insanity, the prosecution team was determined to prove that Gacy was fully responsible for his horrific actions. There's a difference between psychopathy and mental illness. Psychopaths are rational. They know what they're doing, and they know what they do is wrong, but they decide to do it anyway. So he was really culpable for his crimes. He was vicious. He was evil. He was not insane in any way. He knew exactly what he was doing. And he killed these people for self-preservation because he was so well-liked politically and business-wise, he couldn't have his public out that he was taking advantage of these kids. One of the prosecution witnesses was Tony Antonucci, Gacy's ex-employee. I saw him in court, and he was off to my left, uh, sitting at the, uh, at the table where the defense attorneys are. And he just stared straight forward. He was fairly far away. I... I might have caught his eye on occasion in the courtroom, but um, I was pretty nervous to be on a, a witness on a trial of that significance at, even at that age, in my early 20s. On March 13, 1980, the jury had made their decision about the fate of John Wayne Gacy. It didn't take long for them to find him guilty. I think it took maybe less than three hours which was amazing, and then he was found guilty. In the final moments of the trial, one of the prosecutors, William Kunkel, called him a ruthless, sadistic killing machine. And I think that's a pretty apt description. The judge sentenced Gacy to death. He was taken to the Menard Correctional Center in Illinois, where he would remain on death row for 14 years. In jail, Gacy's charm continued to work to his advantage. He took up painting and sold his artwork for profit. Many were garish portraits of clowns. The profits he gained from these paintings were not well-received. The government sued Gacy for his earnings. Lawyer Karen Conti took on Gacy's case against the state. Gacy liked to paint, and he uh, was a terrible, terrible painter. And he painted horrible things like skulls and clowns and creepy things like that. But people bought them, and they, they paid $200 a shot for him to paint these ugly pictures. So that's the first thing he wanted to talk to us about. But we went down there knowing that what we wanted to do was represent him in the death penalty. What was surprising was he looked and acted just like anybody else, like your favorite uncle, like your next-door neighbor. 
And if you think about it, that's probably why he got away with killing so many boys and men, because he didn't look evil. You could not reconcile what he did with the man you were talking to. Karen was a firm opponent of the death penalty and also represented Gacy during his final appeals against the sentence. Over the years, Gacy had numerous appeals, and our system allows that. Appeals in the federal court, appeals in the state court. By the time that Gacy had his execution date set, we were out of traditional appeals. When you have a client who has committed these horrific acts, 33 murders, no court is going to want to let him out. No court is going to want to uh, change execution to life in prison because it's politically a disaster. Gacy had to be executed, and no matter what we alleged, even if we had really, really good arguments, I don't think anyone would have listened because it was John Gacy. In a CBS TV interview filmed in Menard Correctional Center in May 1992, Gacy recanted his confession and tried to deny that he was guilty of any of the murders. He claimed that he was a victim of circumstance and clearly innocent. Now, that was balderdash. He was guilty of sin. But nevertheless, it just proved what an extraordinary man he was. And throughout the interview, you can see the interviewer looking more and more astounded by Gacy's relaxation. He didn't look nervous. He looked absolutely composed, relaxed, if anything, a little angry. Why am I being put through this? It's not fair. I, I, it was a pure accident. I, I never did it. We knew it was his last-ditch effort. You know, everything else failed. He thought he could get away with, uh, you know, insanity plea, and that didn't work. So it was last-ditch effort to say that he wasn't involved or that others participated. But it was very clear during his initial confession that he was the one who completed these crimes and completed them by himself. On May 10th, 1994, Gacy was executed by lethal injection at Stateville Penitentiary in Illinois. It was a circus. We were in a room at some point and we saw a television screen and we saw thousands of people lined up at least a mile down the street at the prison with signs, kill the clown, kill Gacy, with our names on it, kill Karen Conti people beating drums, people dancing, people with clown makeup on. It was a celebration. Gacy was unrepentant, even up until his final moments. Gacy's last words were, kiss my ass. Those are the words of a man who absolutely didn't mind what he'd done, who was proud of himself and proud of that killing spree, which makes him particularly chilling. After the execution, you'd think there'd be closure. But there really isn't closure for something like that. I mean, you always think back to the victim's family and uh, the poor young boy who was 15 years old and just a good kid. So as much as you'd like to believe there was closure, there really wasn't closure. John Wayne Gacy remains one of the most infamous killers in American history. His horrific murders continue to haunt the nation. I still get weird emails. I still get weird things where people lash out and, and say terrible things to me about representing Gacy. So as Gacy said to me, you know, your obituary will read Karen Conti represented serial killer John Gacy. And although I won't be around to, to verify that, uh, I have no doubt that's what it will read. 
For kids, monsters are real. As you become an adult, you realize, well, there are no real werewolves, there are no real vampires. But then something like this happens and, you know, it's like, whoa, you know, this monster is real. You know, there is this ogre. It's transfixing, it's riveting. You know, it's fascinating in the most horrifying way. Gacy was the epitome of evil. And he was the epitome of being a great guy. Gave him the ability to be the most evil guy in the world. What Makes a Killer is an Audio Boom original series in production with Woodcut Media and hosted by me, Jennifer Natoso. This series is produced by Audio Boom's Casey Georgie, Rachel Jacobs, and Karen Bevan, and by Nick Mavardekis for Woodcut. Original music by Ben Kregi and Daniel Birch. Executive producers for Woodcut are Kate Beale and Janelle Patel, and for Audio Boom are Brendan Regan and Stuart Last. Recorded by Adam Garner at Listen Up Studios in Atlanta. A special thanks to the survivors and families of victims willing to share their stories. If you or someone you know is a victim of sexual assault, please reach out for help. You can contact the National Sexual Assault Hotline by calling 1-800-656-HOPE or 1-800-656-4673. You can also visit their website at rain.org. That's R-A-I-N-N dot O-R-G. If you haven't already, don't forget to follow us on Spotify or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows. If you have some time, please leave us a review. Thanks. On next week's episode of What Makes a Killer. The streets became quieter and quieter because on the horizon was this this monster called the Yorkshire Ripper. In his five-year reign of terror, Peter Sutcliffe attacked women with a hammer before stabbing them to death. It was a case that haunted the British public. For years, women and girls felt that simply leaving their homes at night meant taking their lives in their hands. For women, it was a very frightening time, and they were stuck in this awful position of being told they shouldn't go out at night. It had an enormous social effect on the country. When Sutcliffe was finally arrested in January 1981, it brought an end to a manhunt that had both terrified and captivated the nation. Peter, in my opinion, was a ruthless, cold-hearted killer who actually enjoyed going out and killing. He got a thrill, he got a buzz.